Amen. Well, we're going we're gonna to start like we did last week in Matthew chapter 1 um, and let that um, push us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you want, you can turn to both of those. Um, we, will, we will spend more time in 2 Samuel, but I want us to see um, that um, there is a reason that Matthew starts his gospel the way that he does. And so um, even as we come off of, of lighting that candle there, one of the reasons that we, we um, take a moment in each service in Advent to, write, to light a candle is to reflect um, and be reminded that one of the purposes of Advent is to recapture the sense of, of longing, um, of waiting, of, of expectation, and of hope. Um, to be honest, one of Satan's greatest victories is whenever he can create or, or put in place this dissonance between us and, and what we think we need and, and we're longing for and what the Lord actually did on Christmas. If you think about the, the significance, if you think about just, is your heart stirred to worship instantly when you just think about the truth of Christmas? And, and for a lot of us, man, that, that just gets dulled down. But if, you, if we kind of zoom back out and realize that even as we look at history, and we mention this almost every year, but as you look at history, it's, it's literally split and, and pivoted upon the arrival of Jesus, that, that we mark things before Christ, right? And then not after death, because he didn't stay dead, but in the year of our Lord, AD, right? And so Jesus has made that much of an impact that our calendar, our historical reference in history is, is, is split at his arrival and is marked by his arrival. And yet, we kind of have this, this dissonance between, okay, what we really long for and what Christmas and really the gospel in general is offering. I was thinking about gifts. I was thinking about gifts whenever I was a kid, uh, gifts that I loved and, and some that not so much. And I remembered I had a grandma that would give all us grandkids uh, savings bonds. Anybody else get savings bonds for Christmas? I realized as I was thinking about this, I never claimed any of them. Like, I don't know where they are. Like, I, I don't even know how to do that. I don't know if you need a piece of paper. Maybe somebody can help me out later. I don't know. I got a solid 150 bucks somewhere. Um, then I don't even know. Like, I just got it. And, and I remember as a kid being like, all right, this is, you know, like, all right, here's the envelope. Maybe there'll be cash in it this year. Nope. Another savings bond. And I, I mean, like, you know, my parents would explain it to me like, well, this is really good. And, you know, when you get to be 18 or whatever, you'll get it and it'll have earned. I don't even know. I don't even know how savings bonds work. But I was like, all right, I'm sure that's a good gift. Right. But like, I kind of just wanted the Ninja Turtle toy that I asked for. And I'm disappointed. Right. And so there's just like, uh, I get it. It's good. And, and here's why I, I say that, because I think that. Again, Satan wants us to view Christmas like that. Right? He wants to convince us that what God does for us is good, and we need it, right? We need it, but it's not really what we long for. It's not really, I mean, you trace that all the way back to Genesis 3, when he's whispering to Eve, it's like, that's not really what you need, though, right? Yeah, I know God gave you all that stuff, but man, he's holding out here, right? And so he, he convinces, he kind of just dulls the, the, the deal down, right, and, and creates this disconnect between, yeah, we're longing for these things. We have desires. Like, it changes as a kid. Like, kids, you're, you're anxiously waiting and desiring what you're going to open on Christmas morning, right? And, and so for us as adults, I mean, and that changes and morphs, and it, it's not even about just the materialism. I mean, this, this idea of longing, this, this idea of hope and expectation, it plays out differently for us as adults and in different seasons of life. But, I mean, this, we, we even see this in the way we go through elections and, and, and different movements throughout our history and 
our, our you know, temptations to think, okay, maybe this, right? If we just need this. If, if we could get this, then these things would get ironed out. This idea of hope and longing and fulfilling and, and what, we feel, what we can feel like if we're not careful is, okay, the Lord handled this eternity thing, but like right now I have all these needs and, and I'm not sure how they connect. And again, that's, that's Satan's objective. And so when, when Matthew starts his gospel, which is where we've been the last three or four weeks, when he starts his gospel by, by saying that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and he says, the son of David, he is saying something so profound and speaking something that when we, when we look at it through the lens of redemptive history, right, when we see all that God has been doing, all that he plans to do, when we see that phrase through that lens rightly, we realize that, that Matthew is screaming at us in this moment that God is not like my grandma who gave us savings bonds. He's not disconnected from our actual desires and needs. He is a God who actually knows what we're longing for, knows our, our, our hopes and our dreams and our desires, and he, in response to that, gave us Jesus. So this little phrase, Jesus, the son of David, packs with it a, a huge, significant statement of hope and of salvation, right? So we're going to look. We're going to look at how this, how this began. And, and when we see what, what God promised to, Ab or to, uh, to David, last week we looked at Abram, and when we look at these covenants, when we, when we zoom in on what God has done in the past in these covenants, we are reminded, like these, these covenants are, are, I think Piper's, I don't know if it's original to him, but it's where I read it, uh, a covenant is sort of like God writing his own job description and then handing it to us. Right? He, this is what you can expect from me, he says. This is what I'm committing to. Okay? So we looked at last week how Jesus is the son of Abraham and how he's the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham to bless all nations. And today we're going to look at the same from David. And when we see these covenants, what we're hearing from our God is that, that he, he says, listen, I will be your God and you will be my people and all of my power, all of my omniscience, all of my glory, he says, is aimed at you're good. Like, I'm committing to, to be your God and to work all things out for your good. And that's hard to overstate the, the glory and the hope and the, and the satisfaction and the rest and the peace and the joy that is delivered with that. And so that's our hope is we're going we're gonna to look a little bit at what, what that means, particularly in light of David and what God has done through the, 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 the person of King David and the promise that he made to him and how that extends even to us here in 2021, that, that even to us as Gentiles, no less, because it, it makes a little more sense if you're Jewish and you got some of that history, but man, even to us as Gentiles, that if we get this, if we can get a glimpse and, and, and get a, a little bit more of a grasp onto what God has promised and delivered, then our hearts will be anchored in a way that we are settled, that we are content, that we are hopeful, and joyful, even in the midst of a world that is continually reminding us that things are not what they should be. Right? And so let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, at the covenant that the Lord makes with 
David. So um, we got got to catch up just a bit. Last week, we we talked about from the very moment in Genesis 3, when that feeling that I just described entered into the world, that feeling that, man, things are not what they should be. That happened in Genesis 3 when the fall happened. Everything began to fracture. What what was made to be our our anchoring source of life and joy was was removed when we sinned against God. And and from that moment on, things have not been as they should be. Uh, They they immediately felt naked, right? They, they had been naked, but they didn't feel that need to cover up until that moment. And you can, you can let that launch us into, okay, there's, a, there's this feeling that, man, things are not what they should be. We have that. That's what drives you to, to hope in different ways and to long for different things, right? It flushes itself out. Sometimes it's acute in the moment of, you know, reflecting on the devastation of tornadoes that we had last week. And, and other times it's more subtle and personal to things that you're struggling with in your life. But nonetheless, we all have the sense of, man, things are not what they should be. And what we see is that Genesis 3.15, from the moment that that arrived, God acknowledges that and grieves that. You need to know that, that, that as much as you grieve the world not being as it should, the Lord grieves it even more so. Okay, you need, some of y'all need to hear that. You need to, you need to just hear that just really clearly for you personally. As much as you are grieved that the world is not how it should be, the Lord is even more so. The Lord has shed more tears than, than you can dream. And even the things that have pained you personally, the things that you see corporately and globally, the Lord is not indifferent to that. So he cares and he acknowledges that. And from that very first moment, he says, it won't always be this way. I'm going to make this right. He looks at Adam and Eve, our parents, us, and says, this is because of you, right? The reason the world isn't as it should be is because of our sin, But God looks and says, I'm going to make this right. You have broken my good creation, but I will make it right. And so from that moment, there's this longing for the the son of Eve, right? This descendant from Eve to come and to make things right, to come and to conquer, to overthrow this kingdom that Satan is establishing. Right there in that moment, there is this promise that it won't always be this way. And we we, we fast forward, we see, uh, again, it moves, Genesis 1 through 12 kind of moves from this macro scale and it zooms in on Adam and Eve, it zooms in on Noah, and it zooms back out on everybody and then it zooms in on this person of Abram and it turns to Abraham and the promises that God is going to make for himself a people from Abraham's family, a people that will be his people and he'll be their God. And, and those people are established that covenant with Abraham is not replaced with this covenant of David. It's rather um, clarified and built upon, right? So the same work, the same uh, movement of God throughout redemptive history, it's not being replaced as these new covenants come along, but rather being culminated, fulfilled, and even added to. And so from Abram to David, we see that, that the, the movement of God's people is they end up in Egypt, right? Uh, at first, that's a moment of salvation, but over time, uh, over generations, as the Lord said it would, that turned into slavery, that turned into his people being enslaved. And, and you may know the story of Moses being sent to get his people out, and that's the, the Exodus story. And we'll, we'll mention Moses a little bit next week, because he makes a covenant with Moses and, and his people as well. But, um, and then when they're brought out of Egypt, we, we know that, 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 that being brought out of Egypt, the promise is immediately given that they're going to be given a land, right? The promised land. You may have a varying degree of familiarity with church, but you've probably heard something about the promised land, right? And so God says, hey, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to rescue you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place to dwell, and it's going to be good. It's going to be so good that the rest of the world is going to take note 
of how good it is. And the, the rest of the world's going to know and say, oh man, their God takes care of them. I want to know more about their God. That's the promise that God gives to his people. And he says, listen, if you obey me, this is the way to life. These are the laws, right? He gives the Ten Commandments and more. And he says, hey, you obey me. This is the way to life. Things are going to go really well for you. We'll live in this land together, and it's going to be awesome. You disobey, and there'll have to be consequences. There'll be repercussions, and you'll have to be removed, and you'll be in exile. And so that is indeed what happens. You know the story. They, 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 they struggle to even believe God about getting into the promised land. They have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then Moses is laid to rest. Joshua takes them on in. They begin to conquer the promised land, and a lot of that happens in the book of Joshua as we read about that. But then um, we see that the people are getting established. They don't fulfill God's promises or God's commands fully to extinguish the people that are there. They start to just kind of lay down, you know, be, be a little bit soft and, um, you know, about what God meant. Well, we don't really have to get rid of all those people. Maybe we can intermarry a little bit. And things start to get a little weird. They don't conquer all the land that they're supposed to. And then we enter into the book of Judges, which is a complete mess. And, and somewhere along the way, the people begin to say, you know what we need? We need a king. We need a king. And the prophet Samuel tries to tell him, no, you don't. God's your king. But nonetheless, they want a king. God gives them a king, and that king is Saul, and he's a bad king, right? He's not, he is not a man after the Lord's own heart. Things don't go well for him. And so then we, we, we get this crazy story, this, this story that's told to children, and it's, a, and it's an incredible story, and it's told in children's books and all over the places of Samuel going to a man named Jesse's house because God has told him that's where you're going to find the new king. That's where you're going to find the king whom I've chosen to lead my people into this season of rule and reign that I have promised them. And you know the story, Jesse has several sons. The first, you know, they bring out the obvious one, the biggest, the tallest, the, the strongest, and, and the Lord says, no, it's not him. And they work their way down the line, and to the point they go, well, is that it? And he's like, well, I got this other one. He's out in the field tending sheep, and he's the smallest. Like, I, probably not. And you know, Samuel says, bring him, and the Lord says, that's my guy. His heart is like mine, and I want him to be my king. And so Samuel anoints him, and then we, we sort of zoom back out. Saul is still the king, and, we, and the next time we see really a highlight of David is whenever he shows up on the battlefield, and the people of Israel are standing there looking at an enemy that they can't beat. That they can't beat. You know the story. It's David and Goliath. It gets misused, it gets mistold all the time, or not mistold, but it gets misapplied all the time because we, we want to think that, okay, we're David and we have our giants in the world and we can conquer them, but really all of this is pointing us toward Jesus. David shows up and, and the people of God are on the ropes, scared of their enemy, really aware that they can't win, and David says, wait, what, why? I'll, I'll fight him. The Lord will take care of this dude. Right? Goliath's a giant. He's a great warrior. Nobody can, can stand up against him. Nobody has lived. Uh, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible says it this way. Nobody's fought this guy and lived to tell the tale. Right? Nobody comes back to camp after fighting Goliath. He's a monster of a man physically, and he's a beast of a man as far as his ability on the battlefield. And David shows up, and he is brave, but most of all, he's trusting in the Lord. Right? And so he exhibits this trust in the Lord that God's people were supposed to exhibit, right? These are the people that had been brought out of Egypt at the hand of a God who brought all kinds of plagues on their enemy. These are the people that saw God crush their enemy 
in the Red Sea. As we see all these stories and we hear these children's stories, we need to humanize them and realize, no, no, this was God delivering his people in such a way that they had to see and say, you know what? God did that. That wasn't our awesomeness. God did that. Over and over again, they're brought to these places where there is no answer, there is no hope unless God shows up, and he shows up. And all of that is cultivating and inviting this people to be a people who trust in their God. Not in their own ability, but in their God. And yet, here they are, standing against a, a Goliath. And they don't trust in their God. But Daniel show, or David shows up and says, I trust God, and he'll handle this. So he goes out there with slings and a stone, which is not... No, you know, it's not the valiant weapon that everybody uses, but it's also not like the kid's toy that we, we think of either. Like David at this point is a seasoned shepherd, right? He has killed lions and bears to keep away from his sheep with his bare hands. So David's a beast at this point. He's a savage man at this point. He's not just a little runt guy that shows up to deliver his brother's lunches and, the, you know, this little, j- no, no, he's a savage man. He's done some, some stuff. He's seen the Lord show up for him. So he's like, I got this. And he slings a stone at that giant, knocks the dude down, walks out there and cuts his head off, right? You got to keep reading. Don't end that story too early because he cuts his head off and takes it back to the camp. Says, this is your enemy people of God, and God has delivered them. This is the first vivid picture we get of David as God's people's champion. And David goes on to become the champion of God's people. There's crazy stories in there. From the time that David is anointed until he's actually brought in as king and Saul is, 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 is killed or, you know, put to death, and then David actually takes the throne. There's a lot of weaving in and out that we can't catch up on today, but the point is David begins very early on to represent this idea of a champion, this idea of a savior, this idea of a conquering king, this idea of a warrior that his people could get behind. The people begin to rally behind David. Songs are written about David. Rallies are are formed when David rolls in. People are cheering for David. People want more influence for David because they trust him. They've seen God work through him, and they begin to allow their hearts to hope in David. And God does an incredible work with David. There's many years that David takes the throne, establishes the kingdom of Israel the way that God intended for it to be, and it's blessed, and it's awesome. They settle into the promised land. David conquers. He pushes out the borders. He conquers and, and takes all that God has promised for them, and it's good. David builds a palace. Things are going well, and that's where we pick up the story here in 2 Samuel. That's a, that's a very quick overview, but I want, to, I want you to have that context. This, this, is, is, this is who David already is. And so in this moment, I think I put verse 7, but I want to read just a little bit more. Um, it, I think I put that in your bulletin, but let's just start at the beginning of the chapter of 2 Samuel. It says, now when the king lived in his house and, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Okay, so here David is, he's conquered. He's done. He's, he's finished his task. All the enemies are checked off and there's rest. The king says to Nathan, the prophet. So David has this man, or the Lord has placed this man, Nathan, who's, who's God's man, that, that speaks to, uh, to God on behalf, or, uh, speaks to God and on behalf of, of David and the people and relays that. So Nathan's the prophet. And, and David says to Nathan, he says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I got peace for my enemies. I'm going to build a house for God. The Ark of the Covenant had been carried throughout all the journeys of Israel, even in the desert. The Ark of the Covenant is this beautiful story and this beautiful picture of God's holiness carried and, and you know, um, in a certain way and, built and tabernacled and, you know, it would go with them. And he says, all right, we're here. We've settled. It's time for me to be able to build a house for God to live in. 
Okay, Nathan goes, you know what? Sounds like a good idea. Verse three says, do what's in your heart. The Lord's with you. But that night, the Lord shows up to Nathan and says, actually, I've got different plans. Okay, so verse five, the Lord shows up to Nathan and says, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord. He says, this is God talking to David. He said, hey, um, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought you and the people out of Israel, or the people of Israel out of Egypt into this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved, and with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God's saying, hey, listen, David, I appreciate your heart, but when have you heard me want a house? Man, some of you are like this with your Christmas gifts to your wife. You're like, your wife's like, when did you think I wanted that? Right? I heard the day this guy bought his wife like a, like a, a trip to uh, uh, a week-long uh, long-range rifle course. And she was like, thanks? Not at all what I wanted, right? So the Lord's going, David, bro, when did you hear me want a house to live in? Right? God's not homeless. He's not worried about, like, God's not been out in the rain. He's not like, he's not less than it. But, you know, his heart is good. He's not mocking David, but he's saying, listen, that's not what I've needed. Okay, verse eight, he says, now, this is what I want you to do. Thus says the Lord of the host, I, I, he says, he's reminding David of what he's done for him and through him. So he says to David, hey, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince or leader over my people, Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have went, and I've cut off all your enemies from, your, from before you, and I will make for you a great name, and the name of the great ones of all the earth, yours will be up there with them. And in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly from that time, I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So in essence, God says, no, 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 David, I appreciate the offer, but actually I don't need you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I have different plans for you. I know you think this is where we should go next, but I have a grand plan. See, David thinks, okay, we've accomplished the mission. This is what God wants is, is this people in this land for all the world to see. And God goes, yeah, yeah, I do want that. God does want that. He does have a plan for Israel. He does have a plan for them to be a city on a hill and a light to the world. But he goes, my plan goes beyond that. Okay, and I'm not done with that. And, and I'm not done with your house. It's not just going to be milk all you can out of this, out of this kingdom. You, you, we know throughout history, we see that the, the lineage uh, of a king matters, right? We see that kings are very worried about how long their reign will last and who will replace them, right? You see throughout history that, that whenever they don't have a son, things, people start to get nervous, right? Because where's the kingdom going to go to? And we start to see people, you know, will, will uh, kill different kings so that they can transfer the line and it goes to nephews. I mean, there's, you know, Lion King and all the other sorts of stories written about this. Drama is found all throughout when you think about a king wanting his lineage, his rule to, to carry on. And God's looking at David going, hey, this is not just about getting all that you can out of your influence and your physical life. I don't need you to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build one for you. So he begins to, to change the narrative. <clears throat> Verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come 
from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all of these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So what does, all, what does all this have to do with us? So the Lord leans in and he says, listen, I am going to keep your throne alive. I'm going to keep your rule and your reign alive until it turns into a kingdom that will last forever. And, and he begins to say some specific things that are actually talking about David's actual physical son, Solomon. And many of these things will be culminated in and found in Solomon, right? Solomon actually does build the temple and there are some things that happen. And we see that Solomon does need discipline. And so right in this moment, as we saw in Daniel, a lot of times in in biblical prophecy, you're sort of seeing two different layers or two different peaks to the same mountain range. If you remember that picture we we showed in uh, in Daniel when we talked about prophecy, sometimes it's talking about things that are going to be happening immediately in the short term, but it also has implications for the long term. So sometimes we're looking at a mountain range and you just see one big peak. But if you actually come over to the side, you see, okay, that's one peak and then there's a, there's a valley and a stretch, and then there's, a, there's a, a larger peak back in the back. And that's sort of what we're seeing here, that God is beginning to promise, hey, I'm going to do something. And, and he does make promises to uh, David's immediate heir, Solomon, but he's talking about more than that. And the promise that he makes to David is that, hey, I'm going to put my people in a place where they will reign and rule forever without threat from outside enemies. Okay, now... We live in a country that is really hard to overstate how blessed we are and how much peace and how much just a lack of angst we've ever felt about threats from the outside, right? And, and, and I'm talking about you know, the things we have suffered notwithstanding. You and I feel secure and safe, but, but for, for this people who have gone, this is a, this is a battle-torn people that have, that have been at war for years and generations that haven't had their own land from the time of Egypt, have been wandering in the desert, and then even the conquest in the promised land has been, it's been work, it's been hard, it's been, and, and so for, for him to make this promise that, hey, this is not going to be a short-lived deal, I'm going to make for my people a place where they can dwell, where, where they live, and they're not threatened by outside enemies where they're not afflicted as they have been formerly. And I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. The Lord is speaking that he's going to do this work and Solomon's reign is going to start out really good. So much so that people are going to do exactly what God meant for them to do. Come from afar. The queen of Sheba from the south comes. We have that story, at least that one and others where they come and see, man, the Lord has blessed this country. That happens through Solomon. The temple is amazing. The rule of Israel is amazing. Solomon becomes amazing. He's the white, like his wealth, his wisdom, his reign is historically noted throughout the world. So, so that stuff happens. But there's this promise. There's this promise that even when he fails, okay, so he goes on to say, when he commits iniquity, 
verse 14, middle of verse 14, I'll discipline him with the rod of man and by the stripes of the son of man. But, what does he say? My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul who I put away before you. So, so God's saying, listen, this is not just a, a thing where, okay, if it does well, then he'll stay there. Um, and, but if he doesn't, like Saul, I'll take it from him and we'll try somebody else. God is, is leaning in and making this covenant promise with David and his household to say, listen, this isn't always going to go well from your end, but I'm committing. I'm showing up and, and, and displaying for all his people divine grace. Okay, so we're already seeing this, 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 this truth of grace that, listen, you, you think, we're, we're so often, we say it a lot, but we still drift back into thinking that we have to earn our favor with God, don't we? We just drift back into that. Yeah, yeah, I know it's about grace, but I failed God this week, and he's angry with me, and, and we just struggle to enter back into the presence. But right here, from this moment, God is making a, a very clear statement that this is how I will work through my people and for my people. It will be through my grace alone, and they will respond to me through faith alone. And even whenever they fail, even whenever they struggle, he says, I'll discipline them, but I'm not going to take the throne from them. Right? And then, so this becomes this promise that, that God is going to, to keep the throne of David and in one day raise up from the lineage of David a savior who will create an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. Okay, so we're still, we're still sort of in this space where it's hard to connect this to a day and age that where we are. I want you to read now David's response just a bit. Uh, verse 18. Um, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Okay, so David hears this from Nathan, and here's his response. So he goes in, and he just, he just sits down and begins to pray. He begins to, to talk to God. He says, who am I? He's overwhelmed. He says, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? Like, God, I, he realized, I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. Verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord, because, your promise, because of your promise and according to your heart, you have brought about this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, and there is none beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people. You, you whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods, and you established for yourself and your people Israel to become your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that you may continue forever, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So what David is, what David is saying is, God, 
I, I don't know who I am to deserve this, but you have been great to move in this way. But I want, what I want you to take note of, uh, amongst many things in there, is that he says in verse 19 that this is not just a word for David and his house. This is instruction for all mankind. What David is catching on to is that when God says he's going to do something forever, when God makes a commitment and a covenant and hands over a job description and says, this is what you can count on me forever, that God is changing the arc of history, or he is or he's setting in place, rather, the arc of history, that this is something that will affect the people, not just immediately in this generation, in his household, and in this, his people, but for years and ages to come, all the way up to 20, 2021 here for us today. This is words of instruction for all of mankind, David says. And the point is, is that God is at work for his people, and his people are people who respond to him by faith. And his people are people who can count on God showing up for them, removing their enemies from them, and giving them a place to dwell. That God has done this work. David had gotten all kinds of glory from the people. People love David. And David here says, man, that's been all you, God. That's been all you. And people need to know that this is where they find hope, that this is where fulfillment is found, that when people are longing for the things of this world to be made right, when people are longing for their hearts to have satisfaction and something spoken deep, and in, deep into them, where they should turn with that longing is to the Lord our God. And so David is saying, this is, this is good news. This is for all people to make note of. And so this becomes the hope of the Israelite nation. And it, listen, after Solomon, Solomon, you know, David makes a mess of things, as you know, but the Lord stays faithful to him. Solomon errs even more grievously than, than his father David, and yet, and yet the Lord doesn't take away his throne. He does punish, right? He does scatter. He does send them in, into exile. He allows kingdoms to, to come and, and sort of to, not sort of, to, to take over, but he doesn't. He, he maintains this lineage even throughout the exile, but the hope sort of, gets decreased for the people as they see king after king after king after king fail to live up to this promise from David's lineage, right? They were expecting a king to come one day that would, that would conquer even more greatly than David and it would set things right and all that had been undone would be redone through this, this king. And so they're looking at the line of David and wondering when could it be? And that hope gets broken all the way down Right, a king after king uh, just kind of takes an axe to this tree, and over and over again, and then it just falls, and it's just left with a stump. And then the prophets start to use the language of this stump, right, the, from the root of the tribe of Jesse, right, from the tree of Jesse, from this just root, this stump, this this like just little piece that's left. God is going to do something, and this becomes a hope and a refrain for the prophets over and over again, where they tell people, this is what's going to come, and they point back to it. Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. My mouth will make known to your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built upon forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4, he says, you have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. Build your throne for all generations. We know the, the famous passage that we sing, and many songs are derived from Isaiah chapter 9. It says, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, government, government and the peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom 
to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. So over and over again, that's just a glimpse. As you begin to scour the scriptures, you see that over and over again, this idea of the son of David, the Messiah, would be linked to David. And, and so when Jesus arrives on the scene, we see in Luke 1, um, when Gabriel appears to Mary, he says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of the kingdom, there will be no end. Therefore, beyond any shadow of a doubt, the Bible teaches that this promise to David is, is found its end, its fulfillment in the arrival of Jesus. Jesus himself walks into this tension. There's people whispering because he's called the son of David, but he's also called uh, the, the Lord of David. And so G Jesus knows this whispering and, and he just jumps right into it in Matthew 22 and I think in Mark 12 as well. He, he, just, he just enters into this debate and he says, listen, not only is he the son of David coming from the line of David, right? The, the Greek will literally say made from David's semen. Like this is, this is a direct lineage. That's why it's traced all the way back the way that it is. Jesus has the pedigree and, and the, the lineage to, to be the savior that Israel had hoped for. But not only is he the son of David, he's also the Lord of David. And in that, we have the glory of Christmas. That the Lord of David the one who was there that created everything, that created David, that gave David the victory over Goliath and over all of his enemies, that that Lord takes it upon himself to condescend into our mess and become this baby that we celebrate at Christmas to put on flesh, that, that he is simultaneously the Lord of David and then he becomes the son of David as he enters in, takes on flesh and becomes the one who is sent. And the reason is because this covenant with David is indeed conditional, right? It needs a king who will not fail. It needs a king. If, if God is going to do what he said he's going to do and establish this throne forever, it can't happen through just one of David's human heirs because they have failed time and time and time and time again. And so what becomes clear or should have been becoming more and more clear is that God was going to have to raise up through this line of David a king who would not fail, a king who wouldn't let his people down. Because we see as we read the Old Testament that, that the fate of God's people becomes really hinged upon their king. And if their king is faithful and loves the Lord, the Lord blesses them and their kingdom, that, that season is good. When they turn from the Lord, the Lord punishes them and they are overrun. And so the fate of God's people becomes, becomes tied to their king. But yet God has made this promise to establish this throne through the son of David. And so who's it going to be? And time and time again, you see, there's been some decent kings. There's been some guys. Maybe it could be this one. But then hope just begins to be lost over and over again. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, Gabriel makes statements like that, that this son that you're bearing, that you're going to bear, Mary, will have the name of son of David, son of Abraham. He is, yes, the, the, the Lord, but he's becoming the son of David too. And we see this, uh, if you remember the story of a, a Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey's colt. The people are screaming out to him, Hosanna, which means save us. And they say, son of David. That right there, their longing, their hope is captured in this is the man. This is the one who is going to save us. And, and over and over again, you see this language, son of David, 
son of David, come and save us. Their hope was, was fully latched on to this promise of this Messiah that would come. through the line of David, and would transform and, and redeem what God had promised through his people that people had made a mess of. And so we see that, that not only is, is Jesus just fulfilling some prophecies, but he is the only one who can actually fulfill that role and be the king who doesn't sin, who doesn't fail. And he, all of this is yes, God's going to do some of this work right in the moment, but then it's looking ahead to the future where, God, where Jesus is going to be. Right now it says he's seated on his throne, right? And he will be there until all of his enemies are made his footstool, and then he's going to come back, and he's going to be inaugurated fully, right? And, and, and consummate. His kingdom is going to be fully brought into view one day, and we will experience the fullness of this promise where we will live with him and even rule with him. That's hard to wrap our minds around, but even rule with him over this world. He's going to come back and set all things right, and with the, with the speaking of the word, the, a sword that comes out of his mouth, will do away with all of his enemies. All who have not bowed to him, all who have not served him will be gone. And he's going to set up his rule here on this earth, right here on the throne, right there in the center in Jerusalem where God has planned to all along. And he will rule and we will reign with him over this earth. And we will be a people, there'll be no more threats. There'll be no more angst. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more enemies to get into the borders. There'll be no more things to worry about our kids' influence or not. We will reign in glory and in peace and in rest forever. That is the promise. That's how it ends. That's where we're headed. Jesus has come and like David, sees the enemy that we are scared and unable to face. And instead of conquering Goliath, Jesus toes up with death. The enemy who none of us could face down. Right? The enemy who no one is going to be able to conquer. We all will succumb to that. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to fight him for you. Right? So, so David is, is, is picturing for us or, or pointing ahead to this coming Savior, this, this guy who will be our rescuer from our enemy. The people were all terrified of Goliath. And David steps in and says, God's got this. We are all terrified of death. It drives so much of who we are and what we become. So much of the angst that we experience right here in this, in this time is because we don't know how much time we're going to have left. We don't know what this world's going to give us, and we, we try to get all that we can out of us. Guess what? Guess who's behind all of that? Death. Right? Death drives our behavior because we're scared. Jesus says, I got this. I got this. And he goes off, and he sets his face like flint to Jerusalem, and he says, I'm going to conquer your greatest enemy. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Instead of conquering Goliath, he conquers death for us. And then he's resurrected and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's on his throne today. And that changes everything about where you and I are in the meantime. That right now, this is the Savior who has promised to bring salvation to all who would call on him. 
It's not just about the Jews. It's indeed about the Gentiles. It's about everyone. It's about the whole world. David says this is good news for the, all of mankind. And we see that there's this discussion. As you read the book of Acts, people are going, okay, wait, is it just for the Jews or is it also for the Gentiles? And, and Peter's like, well, I ran into some Gentiles and they had the same spirit as, as we did. And Paul and Barnabas are like, yeah, we've seen God at work all over. And James stands up. There's this the Jerusalem council where they're trying to decide, hey, as God it, it, can, can anybody be saved or is this just for the Jews? And, and James stands up and says, hey, it says in Amos that after this I'll return and I'll build a tent of David that has fallen and I'll rebuild it in its ruins and I'll restore it and the remnant of mankind may seek that, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from all, or from the times of old. And so he's saying, listen, God has always promised to do this. God had in view, yes, this rule for Israel, but also this promise for all who would come to him. So Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the conquering king, the one who has promised to make for himself a people and to give that people a place where they can dwell. Like these people are actually looking at borders and their physical country, right? And, and whether they're safe from without and the enemies right, outside, and, and, and he's saying, yeah, I'm going to do that, but one day I'm going to come, and I'm going to set this up so richly that that'll never end, and Jesus is that king. He is that king. Revelation eleven fifteen says, so I'm going to try, I want to fast forward to the end, just here quickly. I wanna, Revelation 11 says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and this is looking to the end, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So what's happening right now is Jesus is conquering. Okay? Some of you, many of you are here because you've met Jesus. He has conquered you, right? You have heard the, 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 availability of mercy to all who would call on his name, right? The pardon that this king sets forth, anybody who would call on his name can be saved and brought into this kingdom. You're here, right? You, that's been advanced. Jesus has more to conquer. He has more people to bring in to his fold. The angel here says, listen, the kingdom of the world, that kingdom that, that Satan you know, reached into and began to influence, he said, it has become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. He has reigned. So he's sitting right now, it says he's gonna sit there Till the whole, all of his enemies have become his footstool. So he has a purpose. He's not just waiting because he, you know, he's not just waiting until like, you know what, I feel like coming back now. No, no, he's conquering. He's actively advancing his kingdom. He, he sends his disciples out in Matthew 28 to go into all the world. He says in Matthew 24, 14, says, when all the world has heard this gospel, then the end will come. Jesus wants every tribe, tongue, and nation to hear because, as it says in Revelation 9 and 10, there will be people in his kingdom from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It says this, Revelation 7, 9, and 10, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches just like on palm sunday hosanna save us instead in their hands they're they're crying with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb this has been the movement of all of scripture this is, this is where this has all been headed to. Way back in Isaiah's day in chapter 55, he says this, come, everyone who thirsts. I just want you to hear this. This is how we're gonna close. I want you to hear this invitation from Jesus, the son of David, the root of David, the one who was promised and the one who's come. I want you to hear this. Isaiah 55, one through three says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, 
Such good news. Come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money? This is God looking at his people, looking at you and I in the middle of a Christmas season, in the middle of the the tension of this world. He says, hey, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? This is God saying, hey, sober up. Look at me. Look at me. God says, has anything you've tried, has it actually fulfilled you? The sex, the drinking, the relationships, the money, the, the houses, the whatever, right? The career. Has it fulfilled you? No, you're still hungry. Here's why. Stop spending your money there. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food and incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant. My stead. And and I will promise to you my steadfast and sure love for David. What does that mean? The promise that God made to David, that even, that it won't be reliant upon us, it won't be conditional upon our our ability to handle the the job requirements or our ability to sin or not sin. God has promised to be faithful through his grace to David and to never end that throne. And that promise extends to us, to any who would come to stop being our own Lord, stop pursuing life on our own terms and to surrender to Jesus and to come and buy the food and the, and the living water that no money can purchase by laying down our life and trusting in him. I want you to hear this from Revelation 22, 16 and 17. I just, just want you to listen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's the point of the whole scripture. Jesus says, yeah, I am the root, the tribe of David. I am the promised one. And the whole Witness of history says, he's the one, come. So you're here today in the midst. He has come and he will come again. And the invitation, the the, the plea from our Lord is come. Come, enter into this kingdom and receive this promise, this rest, this secure kingdom, this secure identity, this secure citizenship that nothing can take from you. And let that anchor you in this world of chaos, in this world that is still not what it should be. We're all groaning together, longing for the day when he sets all things right. But he says now, hey, come, come. I am the root and descendant of David. Come. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to to not be lost in just the vastness of this story and the fullness of your promises to David, but instead to be encouraged and to be stirred to hope. To be stirred to worship. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. May your spirit come and make it clear to us that the invitation is to come. Amen. Church, uh, David wanted to build a house for God. God says, Actually, I want to build a house for you. And in that, God's actually saying, I got plans for my own house. I don't know if you know this story. I mean, you've heard that your body's the temple, right? You've probably heard something like that. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So what does all that mean? God says, I don't want to, I'm not worried about living in a temple made out of stone and beauty. God says, I want to live in my people. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, let's rejoice that he came. That Christmas screams to us, hey, he came to make a way so that he could live with us, so he could take up residence with us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should know that, man, the reason Jesus came is to give his blood, to die so that you could be saved, so that you could be where God lives. You could be filled up with this water of life, the bread of life. You can receive it. You won't thirst again. The deepest longings of our soul are meant terminate and to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus. Let's respond to him today. If you want to come and pray, the altar's open. If you'd like to be prayed with, I'll be uh, on the corner. Micah's right up front here. We have others that'll come and pray with you. Let's respond to him today.